Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Badass Writers Podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Fox. There is something inherently fascinating about the power behind music and words. The two are inextricably linked in what they provide for the listener and the reader. What is it that is so powerful about music? What about reading words on the page? The answer? One word. Emotions. In today's interview, we'll be covering some pretty amazing things, but I wanted to expand a bit on the incredible power that these two mediums have. Being able to bring out emotions in people with a song or a story is an amazing talent. Let's take a look at the similarities between the two. Stories can change us. They can make us feel things about the characters and about ourselves. A deeper dive into this would lead us to the relatability factor of the emotions being portrayed. Songs are essentially stories told with the added benefit of music. Lyrics can tell us a story, usually about a character who's relatable in some way. They're usually more character-driven than plot-driven. And when something is happening to someone, something emotional and relatable, we feel for the person. It can also stir up memories or make us think of something from our own lives, and so the song becomes much more meaningful and personal to us. Sometimes, when you listen to a song, it's like the songwriter has reached into your memories and pulled out all of those details. And it's amazing how much we can connect to a simple three or four minute song. But the music itself can also be overwhelmingly emotional. If you're anything like me, you feel things from the music alone and not just from the lyrics. This is what I like so much about classical music, really good classical music, or film scores, for example. I always say that music like that is like a story without words. It's so powerful that I can imagine what it's about without a single word. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. I'm a pretty emotional person. I feel a lot of things for a lot of reasons. Take a movie, for example. Imagine what's supposed to be an emotional scene, but imagine it without music. Is it as powerful? In my opinion, no, it's not. The music adds a depth to it that nothing else can. For me, I will try and choke back tears during a particularly sad scene, but it's the music that really gets me and sends me right over the edge. Once the music kicks in, it's all over. But writers have that power too. If a book can make me cry, then for me, that's the sign of a well-written story. The sign of characters that have been developed so well that I feel that strong of a connection with them. But what if we took music and books and mashed them together? Well, some authors have done that. As you'll hear in a few moments, rock fiction is a relatively underestimated and therefore underwritten genre. Even though there are some books out there in this genre, it's not really recognized. I think that it could and should be more popular. I did a quick search in Goodreads for rock fiction, and only 127 books came up. 127! And I'm not saying Goodreads is an exhaustive list, but in the grand scheme of things, that is not a lot of books. Rock fiction includes stories about bands, real or imagined. It might be a reimagining of a singer, or a songwriter, or a band, a fictionalized account of events, or the life that led to being involved in the music industry. It might be a story about a character whose life is changed because of their love of music. The first book that comes to mind when I think of rock fiction is Daisy Jones and the Six. That's something that gets brought up in the interview today. 
It's very popular. It's written by a very successful author. Another is an anthology called Battle of the Bands by literary agent Eric Smith and several other YA authors and a real-life rock star. But unless I go look at that Goodreads list, I can't really think of any others off the top of my head. I mean, when I try and think about movies that are about bands or the effect that music has on someone's life, I can list several off the top of my head. Yesterday, Empire Records, Forever My Girl, Elvis, A Star Is Born, West Side Story, La La Land, Footloose, Mamma Mia. Like, there are so many movies out there about music. So why not books? It's interesting to note that emotional connection that books and music share, that ability to bring out those emotions in people. But there haven't really been that many fictional stories written about music or about people affected by music. Personally, I'm really happy this genre exists, and I hope more authors write more music-infused stories and get them out into the world. I recently edited a manuscript for a client that took place in the David Bowie era, and I really thought that concept was great. There was a lot of authenticity in the words, a lot of emotion behind them, and I think that that is a fascinating depth that you can add to your writing. Think about a song that brings on a feeling of nostalgia for you. And I'm not just talking about a song that comes on and you think, Oh, I love this song. I haven't heard it in years. It used to play at this bar I went to back in the day. I'm talking about those songs that literally strike a chord in you. Pun absolutely intended. The ones that, for whatever reason, make your heart stop for a split second. The one where the moment you hear it, you close your eyes and you're taken back to another place or time. This is the emotional connection that I mean. The one that makes you fall in love with a song and want to listen to it over and over and over again. Um, Here Without You by Three Doors Down is one of mine. Sugar Shack by Jimmy Gilmer and the Fireballs. Stand By Me by Benny King. Our House by Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. My Girl by The Temptations. Some of those old 80s ballads by Bon Jovi or Poison or Guns N' Roses. Led Zeppelin's Dire Maker pretty much the entire soundtrack to every season of This Is Us. And how about this one? Always by Atlantic Star. How many of you know that one? Or even something that makes you mad or sad. Jar of Hearts by Christina Perry. It doesn't even matter what that strong emotion is. If it makes you feel something, that song has done its job. That artist has done their job. So these are some of the songs that, for me, remind me of something or someone in my life, in my past. Everyone has their own songs that do that for them. And let me just say, even when a song connects with me so deeply, like in a sad way or an angry way, I still love that song because it's still bringing out emotions in me. Those little sparks of emotion are all it takes to form a bond with the listener, that relatability. Sometimes that isn't in the artist's control because it depends on the circumstances around the listener when a certain song comes on. But if the song wasn't relatable in some way, or if it didn't have a good beat, or meet the expectations of the listener in terms of pacing or song structure, then it wouldn't have the same outcome. Well, it's the same thing with a story. So when a book can do that, it's like magic. When you read someone's words and they connect with you on some deep level, that is what's at the root of why people keep turning the pages. So it only makes sense to meld these two things together that have so much in common, doesn't it? See what I mean about how many similarities there are between music and stories? The more I talk about it, the more you can see all of those similarities. 
So certain story genres have certain expectations to meet, the pacing, the structure, the beats, etc. But all stories need to have a relatable, emotional backbone in order to make them work. Even just thinking about rock fiction, my love of music, all the concerts I used to go to, my obsession with bands and singers when I was a teenager, the excitement when a new album dropped or a band I wanted to see was coming to town, these are all pretty relatable to many people. A lot of people loved music and they grew up on music and they had their favorite bands and their favorite songs and they would turn to that music when something happy or sad or scary was going on in their lives. So that relatability that comes from music can be turned into a story. And it's all so inspiring. And just like that, uh-oh, I feel another story idea coming on. Today's guest is Christy Alexander Hallberg, and she's the author of award-winning novel Searching for Jimmy Page, which was published by Livingston Press in 2021. She's a teaching professor of English at East Carolina University, where she also serves as a senior associate editor at North Carolina Literary Review. She received her BS and MA in English from East Carolina University and her MFA in creative writing fiction from Goddard College. Her fiction, creative nonfiction, book reviews, and interviews have appeared in such journals as NCLR, Main Street Reg, Eclectica, Story South, Entropy, Litro, Contra River Review, Deep South Magazine, and still The Journal. Her creative nonfiction essay, The Ballad of Evermore, was a finalist for the Sequestrum 2020 Editor's Reprint Award. Her flash story, Aperture, originally published as Story of the Month in Fiction Southeast, was selected for the 2021 issue of Best Small Fictions. Welcome, Christy, and thank you so much for joining me today. Well, thank you so much for having me. So before we dive into the questions, can you tell us a little bit about Searching for Jimmy Page? Sure. In terms of plot, the novel follows 18-year-old Luna Kane as she journeys from her family's farm in eastern North Carolina, where I'm actually from, to England in the winter of 1988 to solve the mystery her free-spirited dead mother Claudia set in motion when Luna was a child. Is Jimmy Page her father? So that's the plot. It's it's not a mystery in terms of genre mystery, but it does have that kind of mystery element in it. But I think at its heart, the novel is really about grief and mother-daughter relationships and how we use myth and art to create our own personal narratives. And, and I also think it deals with the religiosity of music like the power that music has for some of us to create strong emotional experiences and to carry listeners into sort of spiritual realms, like how we make gods of the artist whose music resonates with us for whatever reason. Think about the best, most enigmatic rock stars. I mean, they're fiery, energetic, charismatic, much like evangelical preachers. So they inspire that kind of excitement and devotion from fans. So, so that's really, in a big nutshell, what the book is about. Wonderful. And just what you were saying about a strong emotional experiences, music has always been something that gives that to me. Mm -hmm. Like when I'm listening to something, you know, it whether it be the lyrics or the music itself, it's just some songs or some genres of music. It just, it pulls something out of you that nothing else can, right? Like music is so, it's so interesting. And I love that it's kind of being melded with literature this way as well. Mm. 
Yeah, there's something really primal about it. So I guess we're soul sisters in that respect because I have that reaction to it as well. Yeah, when it can bring out those emotions, that's when you know you've got a very talented songwriter or or Mm -hmm. musician on your hands. So in terms of your inspiration behind it, how did you come up with the idea? And can you tell us what your favorite part of the story is, if it's not too spoilery? (laughs) Well, the inspiration, gosh, um, I came out of the womb a music lover. And I have three older siblings. They're quite a bit older than I. The next to the youngest is 10 years older than I am. And he played drums in various rock bands around my hometown of Greenville, North Carolina, when I was growing up. And I just thought he was so cool. And I got so much of my musical taste from him. I mean, I I did from all three of my siblings, but, but mainly my brother, Steve. And he idolized Led Zeppelin, especially Led Zeppelin's drummer, John Bonham. So the music, their music was always kind of in the background as I was growing up. But one day, when I was 15 years old, my mom and I came home from church of all places. And Steve was in the living room, stretched out on the sofa, watching the MTV broadcast of the Led Zeppelin concert film, The Song Remains the Same. And I I recognized the music when I when I came in the door. And then I went into the living room, and the first image on the screen was Jimmy Page. And I don't know how to explain it other than to say my reaction was immediate and visceral. And it, it was like the Messiah has arrived. It was just, they they encapsulated so much of what I think I was looking for and missing as a, a teenage girl growing up in a small Southern town who had interest outside of what maybe the norm was. And they played great music. They had great stage personas. And there was a little bit of, of danger there. And so I just was hooked. And so they, they, that band's always been with me. When my mom died in 2003, I was crushed. And I really grieved in an incredibly intense way for her. And I reached a point in 2005 when I thought, I'm either going to die or I'm going to do something out of character to shake myself out of this hole that I'm in. And it was then that I read about a guitar contest that Jimmy and Brian May from Queen and Dan Hawkins from The Darkness, actually, were judging for a charity in London that summer. And I thought, that's it. I have to go. And I'd never been out of the country before. I didn't have a passport. I really hadn't done much traveling. But I knew I had to go. And I knew I had to go alone. And it, it turned into this kind of vision quest for me, you know, thinking that if I can make that trip on my own, and I can somehow make contact with him, and, and not in a creepy way, but just he became the gatekeeper to my healing. And so I, I got a VIP ticket for that show at the Hammersmith Palais in London for summer 2005. I got a, a passport and off I went. And so I had this amazing experience of, of seeing London, this place that I'd always wanted to go, but never had. And I turned it into this kind of pilgrimage where I went to a lot of Led Zeppelin sites. And it culminated in that guitar contest at the Hammersmith Palais. And I made contact with him on several occasions there. There was one point where we were touching shoulders and I, I couldn't say anything. 
And I, I had this kind of moment of clarity where I thought, you are never going to be in this spot again. You're never going to have this moment again. And you came all this way. You've got to get out of character and make something happen. Because I, I was always a very sedate kind of person and not a groupie type at all. But the moment came when he was leaving and he came out of the, the backstage area and we looked at each other. And there were all these other people around who shoving stuff at him to sign. And his bodyguard started urging him down the hallway. And I, I just started running after him. It was like, you know, the hell with it. This is, it's now or never. Yeah. yeah and absolutely. I, I, I chased him all the way down the hall and I, I caught up with him at the stairway of all places. And he was starting to head down. I think there was a car park below. And I just, I screamed the only thing that came to mind, which was Jimmy, I came all the way from America just to meet you. And he stopped. And he looked at me. And he smiled. And I'll never forget it. He just he had this smile on his face. But his bodyguard behind him touched him on the shoulder and whispered something was kind of urging him on. And I he he just he looked at me and smiled. and He said, I'm sorry. And he left. So that was my interaction with Jimmy Page. But it was and it wasn't what I wanted. It wasn't what I had hoped it would be, but it, it took on a, a bigger meaning after I processed it. I just thought, you know, the point is you made the journey. The point is you went. And so that's really kind of the inspiration behind this novel. It's the loss of of my mother and my love for the music of Led Zeppelin and this kind of pilgrimage I took to England to try and meet him. I, I went three more times after that. Oh, okay. But I, I never had any contact of any sort with him ever again. I really didn't try. I just, I kept going and I would go to different Led Zeppelin sites and then it turned into, oh, this is going to be a book. So then it became research trips. So that's the inspiration. Uh, as far as my favorite part of the book, it's the ending. And unfortunately, I can't say anything about it here because it would give away this this thing that happens at the end but that was that's my favorite part of the book the most fun part to write were the all the druggy scenes and and the kind of dream sequences and one particularly dramatic moment that I can't really name because that would give something away too but yeah those are my favorites awesome i have to say i envy you for being <laughs> able to take all of those research <laughs> trips that is just incredible. That's an incredible story. Um, just kind of forcing yourself out of that pattern of grief and doing yeah. something for yourself, doing something, like you said, out of character. Yeah. And wow, that's just amazing. And then, like you said, it turns into research trips. And obviously, you enjoy the experience. So mm. you went again. Well, the first time was 2005. I went again the next summer. And then I went again in 2015, and the last time was 2018. And it's strange. All of those trips have been solo. I've traveled a lot with other people, mm -hmm. but there's something about, it's like it started out a solo, almost religious experience for me. And I've, I've not been able to share England with anybody else. I always have to go alone. Yeah. So it's been those four times. And each time I, I go someplace different, I also revisit some of the same sites, but I've been able to, to go to definitely all of the, the sites mentioned in Searching for Jimmy Page. I've personally been there. 
And it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I've been to some sites that didn't make it into the book. Maybe there's another one about that. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, the, the trips definitely helped me sharpen the details and get them more accurate. Because I, I remember at one point I wrote about Kensington Gardens. For the first three trips, I'd always gone in the summer. And so I had this carousel in mind that I was going to write about in the book. Well, the last time I went was in the winter, which is when the book is set. It's it's oh, in the okay. winter of 1988. And I'm so glad that I did. And I went to Kensington Gardens and went, where the hell is the carousel? Ah. And it was gone. And I went up to um, a food kiosk and asked somebody working there about it. And they said, they don't put that out until the spring. And I thought, well, I'm glad I came. Yeah. So it was just, you know, I had a lot of experiences like that. Like I'd write, I'd write about a site and then go there and realize I didn't have it right. I love that. That level of, of authenticity that you can add to it just by, by being somewhere yeah. that you're writing about. See, I already knew a lot about Led Zeppelin and Jimmy Page before I started writing the book because they'd been a part of my life ever since I was 15. Right. So I, I had been reading about them and I'd watched documentaries. And so they, they were just so such a part of, of my DNA at that point that I didn't have to do a whole lot of research into the band. It was more the need to actually go to the places that I was going to write about in the book. That became much more important. The only thing other than going to those locations for research that I did was just making sure I knew what Led Zeppelin's concert dates were like in certain years, because that that was important. And knowing if they were in the United States at a certain period. So there were things like that that I checked on. I tried to make sure all of my facts were right. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to writing fiction and writing nonfiction and essays, because you kind of dabble in um, a bit of everything, uh, short stories as well, what are you most drawn to and why? I'm definitely most drawn to fiction, novels and short stories. And and this may sound strange, but I find that I can be more truthful and honest behind that veneer. I tried to tell a version of this story as memoir, but I kept, I guess because I'm I'm trained as a fiction writer, I kept venturing into embellishments and into kind of murky territory in terms of fact and honesty. And then I, I stepped back at one point and, and realized you know, that didn't really happen that way. And this is, I'm, I don't need to tell this story as memoir. It needs to be a novel. So I'm most comfortable and drawn to fiction. They do say that fiction is basically the truth wrapped mm-hmm. in a lie anyway, right? That's true. Yeah. Do you have any sort of writing routine and do you outline or do you pants your way through your work? I don't outline. It's it's really important to me that I get to know the characters that I'm I'm working with. It, that's not to say that I don't have a general idea of what the story is, but I like for them to reveal themselves and they're going to tell me where I need to go. So if I outline, and this is just for me, if I outline, I I've kind of have found that I'm forcing them into situations that aren't natural. So I don't outline. I am a morning reader. I get up about five or six and I start out reading and that gets my creative juices flowing. And then I write. I'm not worth a damn after three o'clock in the afternoon 
<laughs> I don't have a creative bone left in my body by then. And a follow-up question to that, as an editor, do you see a difference in stories that are outlined versus those that are not? And has that ever changed how you go about writing your stories? It sounds like that is how you do it. And it's for very Mm -hmm. good reason. Um, I like that you kind of said that it forces the characters into situations that aren't natural. So that that kind of says it right there. So everybody has their own yeah. way of, of writing and and doing things. But I'm just curious to see, curious to know if you can see a difference in stories that are outlined versus those that are not. Well, unless a writer tells me they outline the story, there's really no way I can tell if they right. did or not. So I'm not sure I can answer that. But this is just my personal preference that I don't outline it's not a judgment call or anything. And I think outlines work particularly well for genre fiction, you know, where there are certain conventions that readers expect to see in them. Right. For example, like in mystery fiction, where you have a strong hook and red herrings and clues that have to be weighed and evaluated and tension and suspense, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Genre fiction tends to be more plot driven than character driven. So I can I can totally see how an outline would be almost essential in that case. But it just doesn't work for me. But again, I, I don't I don't know that I've ever read a story as an editor and thought they outlined, therefore this isn't working. I just I really can't tell. Yeah, I guess I mean everybody's like I said, everybody's got their own way. And yeah. I don't think there's a right or wrong way. Mm-mm. You know, no. it's it's just whatever each writer is comfortable with doing and whatever mm-hmm. works for them. Yeah. So, and speaking of editing, you're also a senior associate editor at the North Carolina Literary Review. So what do you enjoy more, the writing process or the editing process? Well, they sort of go together. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, you can't be a writer without developing some editorial skills because most of us don't churn out gems on the first draft. I know I don't. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) What was that Anne Lamont piece called Shitty First Drafts? I mean, that's, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, those those initial drafts for me are the hardest part of writing. You know, when you click on the computer and you're staring at a blank screen, mm-hmm. that that's terrifying. Yeah. What if the muse isn't with me today? You just trying to to create something from scratch, building that story, getting to know the characters, all that stuff that happens in the beginning of a project you're working on is the most daunting for me. Shaping the work and fine tuning it editing, which comes with revision, that's more fun for me. That's not as scary. Then then you've got the template or whatever you want to call it. You, you've got something in front of you. And so your job now is to flesh it out and make it better. And that's not to say that's not a challenge too, but that's more fun to me. The other stuff is just, I'm white knuckling it. Just, oh God, can I get this out? As far as editing for North Carolina Literary Review goes, I know I've learned a lot as a writer from the work I've done with that journal. Reading other people's essays and stories is in a way like studying craft. It's been an invaluable experience. Yeah. Even as a writer, just, you know, like exchanging pages, um, critiquing each other's work. There's a lot to be learned with that. And, Mm -hmm. you know, even if you're a new writer, I I talk about this sometimes on, on the podcast is even if you're a new writer and you're just discovering everything, you may have learned something somewhere that somebody else who's been writing for a number of years 
hasn't learned or hasn't been yeah. exposed to. So there's no there's no end to the learning that goes on in the writing or the editing process. Well, I also want to say that I've been really lucky in working on that journal because the the editor, Margaret Bauer, is phenomenal. She is the, the consummate professional. She's got vision and she is so giving in terms of her time and her knowledge to the staff, to the student workers. And she just, I think, I think it's now her 25th year there. And I've been working on the journal since 2005. So I, it, she's instrumental in making that experience as part of the editing staff so rewarding. Yeah. And editing, I agree with you there with, with what you were saying about it kind of being the more enjoyable aspect of writing because mm. like you said it's kind of daunting to sit there and stare at a blank screen and just you know you wake up in the morning and you hope that that inspiration is going to be there but it's not always there and yeah. you can't you can't force it I find sometimes I'll try and do something like a prompt or a writing sprint and usually with a writing sprint it helps me even if I'm writing about something completely unrelated it'll get the words flowing and then mm -hmm. It kind of brings my mind back to to whatever project I'm working on. But yeah, the editing I find really it, that's that's where you can really make it shine. And mm -hmm. like you said, you've got something to work with. So that's where I find that, you know, you can brainstorm and do all that fun. So I love brainstorming. That's one of my favorite things to do <laughs> um, during the writing stage. But with the editing, if you've got words in front of you, you're getting different ideas come to you. And it's that's the fun part for me as well. Yeah. I, I love the editing. It's absolutely yeah. the better part, <laughs> the better half of writing. <laughs> Do you are you a quick writer in the initial stages? Does it come quickly to you? Uh it can. It depends. Like I've written a manuscript in a but well, just under two months. So if I have the time wow. to dedicate to it, and if it's <laughs> if the words are flowing, then I can. But the one that I'm working on now, I've been working on for a year because there's just been so many other things going on mm -hmm. and writing just, it's one of those things that gets shoved to the back burner. And so there yeah. have been many times where for weeks I haven't written anything and I've got all these ideas going on in my head <laughs> and I want to get them out. But at the same time, I just, I just can't do it because there's just so much that's been going on. But, sure. you know, if I have the time to sit there and keep my butt parked in the chair and just <laughs> yeah I can I can do it fast I don't know I've I found that the more I learn about writing and the more ideas that I've played around with the more time I I'm putting into it as well like I'm mm -hmm. I don't know sometimes it just depends on on the mood or the inspiration whether it's there or not but yeah. yeah, I mean, I enjoy writing. I actually, I really like writing sprints, which I discovered about a year ago, hmm. um, doing those. And that's, you know, I can pound out on the keyboard, you know, a thousand words in 20 minutes if if I'm really, really focused. Holy cow. But, you know, that means I'm turning off the phone, I'm turning off notifications on my computer, and I'm 100% focused. I've got nothing right. else going on, right? So, it just depends on the circumstances, but I do like, I, I like to fast draft if I can, because then I get to, to get to the editing stage. Yes. Fun. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah, I can dig that. 
Yeah. Searching for Jimmy Page took me over 15 years to write. So, oh so don't goodness. don't beat yourself up. It's taking you a year. That's <laughs> hey. Well, you know what? I have to say the first manuscript that I ever completed took that th- that was a story that took I would say it was about 25 years to mm. t- to to fully form that idea in my head. I knew there was something there, yeah. but until it's hard to explain, but several years after what gave me the idea in the first place, there was more to that story. And then yeah. I it it just it just clicked one day and all of a sudden, okay, there I am. There's my keyboard. Let's go. And that's that's the one that took me about two months to do. Well, that makes perfect sense to me because that's sort of what happened to me with this book. It it was like I wasn't ready to write it. I wasn't mm-hmm. through kind of living certain experiences that I needed to go through in order to get to that emotional truth. Right. So that's, I I think that's why it took me so long. I just wasn't ready to tell that story until several more things happened to me. Yep. Sometimes it just, that's just the way it works out Mm -hmm. and that's fine. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with taking that long because like you said, you need to, to have those experiences and and to process them before Mm -hmm. you can get them out on the page. Yeah. Are you working on anything else at the moment? And if so, can you tell us about it? I am, but it's still in the very early stages. And I know it's going to change a lot. And I talked about it some in other interviews and then realized I really should shut up about this. I really <laughs> should just because you don't know, you know, I don't want to jinx it. And I mm-hmm. don't, I should just, I'm going to keep it to myself. But yes, I'm working on something. Wonderful. Well, that's good. That's all that matters. <laughs> <laughs> In terms of publishing, how has that process been for you when you had Searching for Jimmy Page published? And did you have an agent to help you navigate that process? I did not have an agent, but I sure as hell hope to before I'm ready to send out the next book because doing it pretty much all on your own is a bear. Um, The writer Leah Hampton told me right before my novel came out that bringing out a book is hell. And now I know what she meant. All of the stuff that you need to do to get the word out and and to get reading dates if you don't have like a, a big publisher behind you setting all that stuff up is really daunting. My publisher is Livingston Press out of the University of West Alabama. Joe Taylor is is the publisher and editor and I think the world of him he's been wonderful. I'd sent the book out to a lot of different places over the course of about two years, I think, and realized with each rejection, oh, I sent it out too early. It wasn't ready yet. And I noticed that the rejections went from just the form, either not hearing at all, or just a, a kind of the, the form, thank you for your submission, we can't accept it kind of thing. It went from that to about six months before it got picked up, people were actually saying, we want to do this, but we can't for this reason. Or most of the the editorial staff really loved it and wanted to do it, but ultimately we're not going to. And then finally, Joe took it. And it, it was because I kept revising every time I got a rejection. I keep going back to it and realizing mm, it just wasn't ready yet. So by the time it finally reached him, it was in fairly good shape. And then we worked together and came up with a new draft. And so that's what came out. 
but he was really great in terms of being supportive and offering editorial advice. But, you know, it was a small press, so the budget's limited. So you have to do your own marketing. You have to do all of that yourself. And it's it's tough. It's time consuming and and really stressful. But I don't have any regrets. I'm I'm glad for how things have gone. It's gone into a second printing. So it's oh, it's wonderful. Yeah. And the audio book is coming out in a couple of months. So oh, it's that's awesome. Yeah, it's doing all right. Good. Yeah, those rejections are hard. And I think <laughs> I mean, every writer experiences that, right? You you get mm. your thing ready, you have your whole manuscript as polished as you can make it. Yeah. But when you start getting those rejections in um, and and get some feedback, if you're lucky to get some feedback, then you start revising and realizing, well, it wasn't ready. I thought it was ready. Apparently it's not ready. And now I can see why it's not ready. And then you revise yeah. it and then you send it out again and you get the same thing. So it's kind of a I don't want to say never ending circle because hopefully it does end at some point. Yeah. But you know, it it is a circle and you, you, I think that's something that, that all, or at least most writers go through is just, you know, when it's your, the first one that you're trying to, to get out there, it's rejections are going to come regardless. Absolutely. It's, it's just the way it goes. But yeah, those revisions, I don't think anyone's ever going to have a perfect a perfect one the first time they send Mm-mm. it out and that's Mm-mm. it's it's hard to hear that but it's also it's the truth like that's just the way that it works in the in the publishing world yeah but I'm glad but- you stuck with it because that <laughs> is the difference between being published and not published right you stick with it you persevere and you keep trying and, and keep revising and eventually you'll get where you want to go absolutely I think it's also important to learn to trust yourself as well so when mm-hmm. you get when you get feedback, learn to kind of sift through that because some of it is going to be spot on and, and you're going to have a light bulb moment and go, oh, well, yes, of course. I, yes, I should have done that. But then you have to realize not everybody is going to get your story. Not everybody is going to get you or understand what you're trying to do. And they may offer advice that if you take it, you're going to ruin your voice. You're going to ruin your vision. So I also had to learn what to throw out and just say, no, this is what I want to do. And then also to let in the advice that was really spot on. And it it took a while to kind of recognize that. Yeah, like sometimes it can be hard to hear certain advice, but if you take it and kind of sit with it for a little bit, Mm -hmm. you can start to realize you know let it sink in take a few days I I always say that to my clients let it sink in yeah use only the feedback that resonates with you it's not all going to resonate with you because this is your vision Mm -hmm. my vision might be something totally different but you know if we can kind of take the things that you you don't think apply and don't apply them and that's fine it's your story you know your your story best but also let that feedback and the comments and suggestions sit with you so that you can really determine whether or not it is a good fit for your story, mm-hmm. this this revision or that revision or or that suggestion. And always trust your instincts. That's yes. something that I tell all my clients, trust your instincts. Don't feel obligated to go with every single comment that you get with any feedback from your beta readers, from your critique partners, from me or any other editor that you use. You know, it, you do you do have to trust yourself 
So kind of switching gears here, I see that you're also the host of a forthcoming podcast called Rock is Lit, which I love the name of. Um, <laughs> and I did check it out a little bit. Um, can you oh, tell cool. our listeners what it's about and where they can listen? Yes, this is through Pantheon Podcast Network, and we're going to start dropping episodes September the 15th. And you can listen wherever you get your podcasts, like Apple, Spotify, et cetera. You can go to my website, christyalexanderhalberg.com, to find links to episodes and show notes and bonus material and all that good stuff. So essentially, in each episode, I interview authors about craft and the musical inspiration behind their work, then bring in music experts in these separate segments to add real-world context to the bands or musical periods featured in the novels. That's amazing. I love it. I love the whole concept. I can't wait to listen. There are a whole lot of rock novels out there. I really was not aware of this subgenre until I finished writing my own book and wound up interviewing Jeff Jackson, who wrote Destroy All Monsters, the last rock novel for North Carolina Literary Review. And that's a rock novel. And he was telling me about all these others that I had somehow missed. Mm-hmm. And, and so it just became something that I I came I'm obsessed with and just reading all this stuff going wow this is this whole subgenre that I'd been unaware of and now I'm a part of and so we've already had some some great interviews with um Jeff he's in the premiere episode Susie Quattro who is a, a legend in in rock and roll and she used to play Leather Tuscadero on Happy Days in the 70s and she also wrote a rock novel called The Hurricane. So I interviewed her, Janet Fitch. She wrote Paint It Black and also White Oleander, but Paint It Black is her rock novel. Jennifer Halp's Come As You Are, that kind of focuses on the Seattle scene in the 1990s. And Zachary Lazar's rock novel Sway. So these are some of the people that I've already interviewed and they're going to be in, in the, the first episodes. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, it sounds like it. So are these novels that you're mentioning, are they are they like fiction novels or are they mm-hmm. nonfiction biographies? Kind no, of they're they're novels. They're okay. novels. They're fiction. So that's the whole premise of the show that makes it a little bit different. Because mm-hmm. I think there are lots of podcasts that deal with rock books, like biographies or autobiographies or you know, criticism, journalism, things of that nature. But this this deals strictly with rock novels where there's just a, a fictional situation, and it might be a fictional band. But in many of these books, people are writing about real artists. And I'm not talking about fan fiction. This is literary fiction. And so it's just, it's really interesting how music and literature converge in these books. And that's what the podcast explores. I picked up on, you know, Come As You Are and mm-hmm. Painted Black, so Nirvana, Rolling Stones. So that's really interesting. That is a genre that I don't think is as known. So it's really yeah. interesting to hear that there are these these rock fiction novels and it, that it's not fan fiction. It's not biographies or autobiographies. It's a fiction story. And uh, I'm totally interested. I'm totally into that. Going back to what you're saying and, and what I was saying, too, about it not being fan fiction, uh, one of the authors I'm interviewing, in fact, I'm going to interview her next week, Dana Spiota, wrote a novel called Eat the Document, and it was nominated for the National Book Award. So that's oh. the level that people are, are writing on with these novels. And the work is is amazing. The craft is amazing. But it has that kind of added bonus of 
being about music or the people who make it or the characters who love it. So there's there's that element in it that I think will appeal to a lot of people who maybe aren't readers, but they love music. Yeah, absolutely. I, I can already think of a few people actually who aren't necessarily readers, but who love music in general and, you know, music that comes from those mm-hmm. those different eras. So that's awesome. Sounds like something I definitely want to listen to for sure. So September 15th, that's the day that the first episode drops? Yep, the first two drop on September 15th, and then it's a once a week thing. Great. So it sounds like you've had a very successful writing career so far. So what are your goals going forward? Oh, I would love to see the podcast take off. I'd also love to see Searching for Jimmy Page get optioned for a film. I mean, a girl can dream. And the audiobook is coming out, so I'm anxious to see how that's received. And I'm looking forward to finishing a new book, which I hope won't take me as long to write as Searching for Jimmy Page did. So our last question for today is, do you have any advice for writers who are combining music with literature or any other rocklet books that you could recommend to our listeners? Yes. My advice, and I learned this through painful experiences, skip the song lyrics if you're writing about actual musicians and songs. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In my initial drafts, I had a whole bunch of Led Zeppelin song lyrics. And the process of getting permission and the expense of getting permission to use song lyrics is crazy. And and I, I never did get that permission. And we were right up until, I don't know, a few months away from publication. and my publisher said, you're going to have to take them out. You're just going to have to take them out. And I thought, oh, this is not good. This is going to affect the story. But I got creative and did a workaround and kind of tried to capture the spirit of the the lyrics, the spirit of the songs and sent him a revision. He said, you know what? The book is better. So I just, I learned not to even, unless you've got a big publisher behind you, and you've got people who can handle all that headache of trying to get permission and can pay the money, skip it. Just either make up songs or just kind of deal with the the spirit, the essence of the song and, yeah. and do a workaround. That's my advice. Other recommendations, the books I mentioned earlier, plus Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad. That is fabulous. That won the Pulitzer Prize. Taylor Jenkins reads Daisy Jones and the Six, Nick Hornsby's High Fidelity. And that's just to name a few. There are a lot of fantastic rock novels. Yeah, I have not read uh, Daisy Jones and the Six, but I've heard a lot about it. And that is definitely on my TBR for sure. Um, And then just going back to what you were saying about lyrics, there's I've seen some talk about that. And I, I have listened to, you know, podcasts and, and information from agents and from lawyers who who kind yeah. of deal with that kind of thing. And that is the general consensus is that it's almost impossible to do and it, it is expensive or it can be expensive. I have heard of some people that have said that, it, oh, it's not as bad as, as what I heard and it's not as expensive. And I think it just depends on who it is that you're exactly. asking, right? Yeah. One of the manuscripts that I I haven't finished yet, but it's kind of it's it's sitting in there and 
while I was writing it, I just, you know, this song came to me. It's a song by Gordon Lightfoot and just mm. the lyrics are so perfect. And I know this mm -hmm. is what other writers go through. Oh my God, it's so perfect. I have yeah. to use it. It's going to be ruined if I can't use it. And I mean, there are ways that you can work around that. And I love what you said about kind of building in the essence of that song mm -hmm. into like your readers will understand if you can write that essence, kind of weave it in. And if they don't, they'll go look it up. Right. And and that's it's not going to deter them from reading if the lyrics aren't in there. So you do have to keep that in mind as well. Right. Um, if it's something that's super important, go for it. See <laughs> see what the process is going to be like. I I can almost guarantee it's going to be a lot more difficult than mm -hmm. than what you might think, but you never know. You could be surprised. But I think the majority of cases is that um, it's just not going to happen. It's going to be too right. expensive or they're going to say no or or whatever the case is. If you can get creative and kind of work around it, that's your best bet, I think. Uh, yeah. Well, Christy, good luck with your podcast and Thank with you. your books. Um, I'm excited to read yours and your next one coming out and all of these wonderful titles that you've given as recommendations as well. And thank you so much for joining me. This has been a great chat. Well, thank you so much. Yes, I've enjoyed this a lot. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope you found this topic and interview as badass as I did. Do you have a music-infused work in progress? Do you know of any agents who are looking for music-inspired stories? Let me know. Hit me up on Twitter at underscore badasswriters or get in touch with me on my contact form on my website at www.kathleenfox.com and that's with two X's. This fall is jam-packed with interviews, and I have bonus episodes coming out of the woodwork, so I hope you're ready for an incredible fourth season. My one-year anniversary episode is also coming up at the end of November, and I can't wait to share it with you. Until next week, keep being badass.